Yes, we are going to rearrange the car now. As uh, this front seat is uh, disorganized, and we're going to make it organized. So, follow my instructions, please. Uh, the first thing is to close the bag as uh, the zippers. Zip the zippers on the bag until they are closed, and then we'll be able to move the bag. Uh, the zipper zipped. Good. So, uh, so move the bag now. So the zippers are zipped. The bag can go down on the floor in front of the seat. Good. Yes. Now, also the water bottle. It is empty. You do not need it. No. You do not need the water bottle right now. Good. So the empty bottle goes down on the floor as well. Good. So now see the seat is opening up. We are having more room. They're opening up the space. Uh, the road atlas, yes, fold it to the appropriate page. So you're traveling now in the state of Idaho. Yes, the, the northern part of Idaho. So fold the, the road atlas to that page and place it on top of the bag. Yes, right there, perfect. Yes, next and finally, they're almost there. <clears throat> The Oakland A's baseball cap that you may also place on top of the road atlas. So it is ready in case you need to get out of the car in the sun. You will have a hat to wear. Yes, perfect. Now see the seat is open and now we take the computer. Yes, the precious computer that we want to protect. We have a nice seat for it and it. <coughs> It is just like your baby passenger. As of course, uh, the baby you do not put in the front seat. Uh, the baby always goes in the back seat. But in this case, we wish for the headphone cord to reach from uh, the port on the side of the computer to our ears. And so it cannot go in the back seat like a baby. We must keep it in the front seat. And now we have much room and space for it to sit comfortably and positioned so on the front seat I believe it will stay put when you are doing the turning and the twisting and accelerating and decelerating of your journey across the United States and now you may open the computer yes it is comfortable and safe and secure and you may place the earbuds in your ears and you may listen to your favorite podcast. Merci beaucoup. Welcome to Painting Pictures. I'm Gabriel Roberts, and I'm coming from you this evening from beautiful, lovely, clear, still, and cool Smith River, California. 
I'm at the end of a nine hour day on the road. I began, oh gosh, where was I last night? Outside of Hood River, Oregon, near Mount Hood, which is a heck of a mount. And I made my way down Highway 5, feeling really glad to be near the end of my journey. It's been a wonderful summer, of course, that I've told you all about in Paonia, and then a really good couple of weeks of roaming and driving, but a body can only take so much travel, and a mind and heart can only take so much expansion in one bit of time, and so I'm feeling excited about getting uh, back home. I'm going to be here in Smith River for about a week doing some work for a friend, and then um, be back home for a little bit and feeling good about getting a chance to collect myself after this crazy summer and sort of bring it all together, gather myself up and then decide about the next move. And uh, I came to you two weeks ago flying high on the love of the summer and I've still been floating on that a bit, but I think inevitably you have to, uh, in order to reach the great heights of love and uh, fulfillment and feeling of being infilled with joy uh, and bliss, I, I think you also have to touch down on the other end of the spectrum. And that finally happened uh, a few days back when I was up in Glacier Park. I think it was a process of gradually unraveling all that had happened and reflecting on it all and then being away from it all, being away from Paonia and being away from all those dear people that made me feel so filled with love and universal juice and charged up and then spending time on my own, um, I think gradually came back to earth and all the effects of being around all that energy gradually left my system and I was left with a bit of emptiness and I got really frustrated there was one afternoon where I was getting ready to go out and try to make a painting and was feeling really sad and I didn't really know why I was sad and frustrated and empty and I think I was frustrated over the fact that I had extended myself and opened myself to so much love and then was forced to feel the effect of its absence. And I had built up, previous to leaving for Paonia, I'd, I'd built up a pretty solid system for uh, being on my own and being leading a relatively solitary existence. And of course I had this podcast to uh, express myself on, but I was accustomed and kind of content with just being alone most of the time. And, uh, and so I think I felt this frustration of having, um, you know, let go of that. And then was I now incapable of feeling contentment and peace and fulfillment on my own? 
And what the fuck? Why the fuck? Why did I do all that? Is it, It's not worth it in the end. Because in the end, you're always going to be alone. You're always going to be back to just you. And of course, that that's true. And um, I think it was good to... I know it was good to be reminded of that. Because ultimately, the source of love and fulfillment is inside us and isn't related to anything outside of us and it's good to remember that and of course it's wonderful to be around other people and to share things and to build things together and I know that there's more of that uh, in my future but anyway I kind of you know came all the way back down to earth and for one fortunately relatively brief afternoon, I was just a ball of frustration because I, I, I was angry and frustrated uh, because I didn't want to feel that feeling of loss and emptiness. Um, and so I didn't, you know, let myself feel it for a while. I forced myself to go out and paint and made kind of a frustrated little painting. Um, and But through it, I gradually let the feelings seep in, and then I sat in my car for a while and just looked out. I, I couldn't even stand to be around people. I'd gone down to this um, sort of beach access point that only had like a, three cars in the parking lot, and I thought I'd have the place to myself, but it seemed like there were people everywhere, and I just couldn't even be around within sight of people. And I was so angry, I felt like if somebody were to approach me, I would cut their head off, or tell them off at least. Um, but I made it through the afternoon and sat in my car for a while and listened to some Andrew Bird and uh, just felt through it and got down to the bottom of it and uh, and now I feel like I'm I don't know if I'm going starting up the other side of another cycle or what but I wanted to share that with you guys um, just that I think perhaps that's how life goes, is that you uh, you open yourself to love, and it's sort of the, the, um, the check that you write that at some point you know is going to get cashed, and you're going to feel the other end of the spectrum. And um, anyway, it's not so bad. You just got <laughs> to sit there and feel it. And then ultimately everything is exactly the same as it was before. You, you have yourself and you have your life and the things that you can control. And um, you have the things that you want. And, uh, and you just kind of pick yourself up and move onwards. And I, uh, I'm glad that I have a little bit of time to sort of be inward and not be super social. And just do some work and um, maybe paint a little bit. And then... Damn if I'm not going to throw myself right back out there um, because I think it's important and I think it's the future. And I don't know if there'll be a way to, I don't think you'll ever be able to insure against, you know, looping all the way down to the bottom and feeling despair. But I think that the more it happens, perhaps you can trust more that uh, there's more love and, and uh, fulfillment on the horizon. And so you can kind of get through those low points with that knowing um, 
that all that's all it is, is is a low point and trusting that the universe is always going to bring you love um, and fulfillment and contentment and joy and bliss and people to interact with and uh, you just can't you can't be specific about it you can't you can't lock it down you can't lock it down and associate it with a particular place or, or a particular group of people um, because that's all out of your control and ultimately that's what I want isn't that what we all want we don't want to have it all figured out that would be pretty boring so let's be glad that there's some novelty and that we don't know how it's going to play out um, and just trust that there's always some some love and some good times out there for us all. So that's the end of that little uh, emotional update, a geographical update. I, I just did a big loop, basically. I've been doing a number of long days, kind of hurrying up now to get down here to Smith River to get in a solid week of work before heading down to um, Sacramento um, at the end of the month. And um, so I was in Montana um, at Glacier National Park. And then uh, my mom and I drove down to Immigrant where she had left her car. And that's where we parted ways. And then I went off west up Highway 90 and stayed, uh, camped one night uh, a little ways outside of Coeur d'Alene in, in Montana, and then and then made my way across, and that is beautiful. Coeur d'Alene looks so cool. I, I didn't stop and hang out. I just drove through it, but it looks awesome. I stopped and had a little swim, and then went on, and I was planning to go to Seattle, but ended up um, just skipping that entirely and cutting across... Washington, uh, and making my way kind of southwest down towards Hood River, and basically feeling like with my car full of stuff, um, you know, stopping in a city is really more trouble than it's worth when you're thinking about trying to get out to some unknown camping destination later that night. And so, Seattle, I hope to be there, you know, and, and dedicate a few days where I can go and rent a little place or arrange to stay with friends and, you know, do that town. I did the same thing with Portland the next day, just skipped it. Uh, Hood River is really cool. It's right on the big river and it's a gorgeous town. And if you have a lot of money uh, and you want somewhere cool to live, I would recommend Hood River. There's some beautiful houses, some lovely views of the river and the mountains, and a really nice vibe to it, a really nice size town. Um, so then from Hood River, camped outside Mount Hood camped right along the North Fork of the Hood River. My campsite was right on the water, so I got to listen to the water at night, which was beautiful. And then today, just busted on down south, uh, dealt with traffic and heat. Woo, boy, is it hot. And there's a lot of traffic around Portland. You know, I don't know, people in California, if you have this idea that up in the Pacific Northwest, you know, those cities are just all clean and easy. Well, um, there's plenty of traffic, and I didn't even go to Portland. I was just on the outskirts, and I was, it was 12 o'clock, and it was the heat of the day, and I was still around Portland, um, but finally made it through and down, and now I'm, I'm just outside Smith River, where I get to stay with a friend in a sweet house with chickens and a dog, and oh, I'm very content, and the ocean is nearby, 
and that makes for some clear skies and some coolness. It's been so hot on this drive all throughout, it seems, inland of uh, Oregon and Washington. There are a lot of fires, especially down in the southern Oregon, and it is muggy and um, smoky, and boy, does it feel good, good to get out to some fresh air. Today's podcast is dedicated to my car, Susie Subaru, and um, she has, without complaint, carried me this summer across expansive hot deserts and up rough mountain roads, and she has not failed me once, never put a foot wrong, and I'm so grateful to have had such a stalwart companion um, to carry me through this adventure and she's just another five hour drive um, got to get over one more set of mountains and then we'll be down and we'll be home and she's going to get the full treatment a lube uh, a wax, a wash um, a tune up anything she wants so thank you Susie um, today's podcast is a solo hodgepodge recorded entirely from the road um, it's not for the faint of heart. This is definitely an adult podcast. <laughs> the title of the podcast is The RV Game. Uh, the RV Game is, well, I don't know if it's the RV game, but it is a RV game. Uh, what you do, I don't know if you've noticed, but all RVs have a name. Their names are, you know, Explorer and Adventurer, etc. Well, the RV game is you take the word anal. That's A-N-A-L, and you put it in front of the name of the RV. So if the RV's name is Explorer, you get Anal Explorer. And you just say it out loud, and you laugh. It's a great game, especially, you know, in the summertime in the Pacific Northwest, where there's tons of RVs cruising around. Um, boy, did I have fun playing that game with myself. And what I've done is recorded a few of my favorite combinations, and gone a little bit in depth on what perhaps that that name might mean. So if the word anal makes you at all uncomfortable, um, this podcast will make you uncomfortable. On the other hand, if you like the word anal, um, you are going to love this podcast because I say it a lot. If you like talking about anal sex, if you like uh, talking about buttholes, um, you're going to love this podcast is is for you. I'm the way I'm going to do this, I have uh one other segment that is uh, totally clean and it is it is about the bomb shelter that uh my parents worked on in Montana that I got to visit and I'm going to lead off the podcast with that segment. So mom and other listeners <laughs> You can enjoy that. Uh, once that's done, you, you may want to check out uh, the rest of this podcast um, because we're going to be going down the going down the um, the anal pathway, as it were. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoy this podcast from the road. If you wish to contact me, please don't think twice and send me an email at gaberobertsart at gmail.com. I apologize if uh, I haven't gotten back to you. Um, I will do so very shortly. And then the, the website for the podcast, where you can find any important links, um, is gabe.com.
robertsart.com. I don't think there are any other announcements. Um, let's get on with the show. Mark Sark is a bomb shelter for 150 people that was built in Emigrants, Montana in the year of our Lord, 1989. I got to descend into Mark's Ark last Saturday morning. It was quite an experience. I hadn't been down there in 24 years. I went down with my mom and were led by a friend who showed us the way, opened the lead-enforced monster door that looks to be going straight into the hillside. Inside the door is a passageway. It's a large steel pipe uh, that descends at about a 20-degree angle. Over the years, it has uh, flattened just ever so slightly. So head clearance gets a little tight around the corner. Uh, you go down about 30 feet and then hang a left and continue to descend down this pipe. Then you get to a pair of doors that bracket a chamber designed for disinfecting or decontaminating. So these doors are just like on a submarine or similar to what you might find on a spaceship. The big uh, twisting uh, wheels to open and close them and uh, so a tight airtight seal. Um, so you then get into that chamber and then beyond is another hallway which then leads you down a little further and opens up to the right to the main area of the shelter, which is a big half dome to your right, uh, two-story tall great room that uh, at this point is sort of littered with random bits, uh, tables and old TVs and cushions. And there's a pump right in the middle of the floor, a water pump uh, that goes down to the well. And then to your left is the kitchen, a full-sized kitchen with a number of gas ranges and sinks, uh, all sorts of cans of food and bags of coffee and utensils and a big stack of mess trays uh, that look like what you would find in a, in a space shuttle, uh, that kind of nice off-white plastic with little compartments. Uh, the lights were on, the lights work, attached to a massive battery, and the kitchen gives you a little bit of an idea of what it might be like to live underground with 150 people. It would be crowded and it would have to be really well organized. Uh, I recognize the smell of the place, I, I can't describe it. it Maybe is a bit of an oily smell, uh, or glue smell, or something. 
but it definitely was familiar to me, which is pretty cool because I've been 24 years, and I kind of recognized the shape of the wall, the big half dome structure for the great room. It seemed familiar to me. So then we hung a left and went past the kitchen and you go by down a long hallway. And uh, first you come upon the, the bathrooms on either side with flush toilets and sinks and showers. And then you get to the, the, the bunk rooms, which are very small and have labels on the doors for the families to which they were allotted. And each one was a little bit different. Some of them were virtually empty. Some of them were full of stuff. Some of them had neatly painted bunks. Everybody had, in their rooms, built their bunk systems. So, you know, couples had um, just a pair of benches and a lot of uh, fold-out tables and such. Um, we got down then... Through the hallway, on either side, are massive canisters filled with dry food. Beans, and rice, and grains, um, and huge stocks of toilet paper. We got down towards the end of the hall, and on the left, we found the Roberts room, which was quite small, had one bunk designed to sleep three little children, ages three, four, and five. I hope I didn't just pass my exit. Gonna have to get right back to you. Boy, there is uh, <clears throat> good missed exits and bad missed exits. And that one was pretty bad. It was another six miles down the freeway with no exit. What a terrible feeling. Where's a goddamn exit? I just want to turn around. But no exit. Nothing you can do. Uh, can't get crazy. Can't tailgate and speed and make it happen any faster. Gotta just stick to the course. As it turns out, the next exit uh, allowed me to get onto the road I was going to get on anyway, 199 South, just a little further up. And it's a beautiful drive. So, I guess this maybe qualifies as a good missed exit, but I sure thought it was a bad one. And I thought, all oh, because I'm blabbing into my phone while driving, and I thought maybe it was a lesson in that I shouldn't be blabbing into my phone while I'm driving, that I shouldn't be working on this silly podcast and, and not focusing 100% on my surroundings, but now, uh, now that I'm on this great road, I guess it's just total confirmation that I'm destined to create the Painting Pictures podcast, and there's nothing more important for me to be doing. Or maybe it means nothing at all. In any case, back to Mark's Ark in Emigrant, Montana. We had just gone down the hallway on the first, the main floor of the shelter, and come upon the Roberts room on the left. A very small room. We are talking, probably, um, let's see, gosh, no more than 
200 square feet and probably less, probably more like 70 square feet. A uh, tiny little room with a lofted bed for the three babes and then below that two sort of benches with cushions that would serve as bed for mommy and daddy and then a, a table that would lay across the two so that would be our little seating area during the day. And the room was filled with stuff um, that we had left behind when we left Montana and headed for California. We were sort of forced out by a lack of funds and uh, inability to make a living in that town. There was a huge influx of people for this Church Universal and Triumphant, came from all over the world and brought all of their life's savings with them and poured them into this shelter and tithed 10% every month to the church, something my parents continued to do for a number of years after we left. But the economy in the town um, wasn't really able to support that many people, and there was a period of hustle and bustle as everybody shifted the money around between each other, but gradually it just bled on out of the system. I imagine from the gas stations and the supermarkets and all the places that people spent money that didn't return it to the community. Uh, so, anyway, uh, we had left in something of a hurry, I guess, and there were things all over. I don't think anybody had, like, gone through the stuff. Yeah, my mom had been there a few years before and taken a quick look. It was mostly clothes, and inside the door on the right was a hanging shelving system. Um, definitely a Papa Roberts construction with the little holes for strings in the four corners of the shelves with knots to hold up the shelves. Really a sweet little system. And um, up the top was Daddy's clothes, and then below that was Mommy's clothes, and then below that was Lucy's clothes, and below that was Miles's clothes, and on the bottom was Gaby's clothes. And boy, did those bring back some memories. Looking through all those old clothes, I remembered the little gray jacket I used to wear with a hood that had little red and white, or red and white and blue and yellow stripes. Um, there was a little pair of gray patent leather shoes with Velcro closures that were absolutely tiny, and apparently those were my favorite dress shoes, and I liked to dance in those. Uh, there were a number of little boots. Um, number of sweaters knit by my mom. There was a box of toys that uh, my mom had, had gotten into the limited space, figuring that if we were trapped for 10 years, we would need some toys to keep us entertained. And so there was a little fire hat, and uh, there was a vest that I guess I like to wear, a cartridge vest ended up passing along to uh, the kid who came down with us um, because he seemed to like it and had little has slots for shells something every boy can get behind 
I basically I went through the clothes and uh, just felt waves of memories and emotions and uh, basically I was struck by the feeling of what my parents were doing and that was securing they thought um, you know the safety and future of their family I think they really believed as a lot of people did that there was a really high probability that nuclear war was about to ensue between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and this was going to be the way that we might survive, and um, it was so dear, the care that they put into preparing our tiny little quarters that would have, I mean, barely held us, and then who knows, over the years, if we got bigger, how we would have lived in there, but I think we would have. Um, and I could sense that feeling of excitement, too, around building that incredible structure that is still standing perfectly fine today, and I'm sure still can withstand 400 tons of pressure per square inch, and uh, has all of its plumbing and ventilation and electrical systems intact and still has food stores uh, to, to, to feed 150 people for 10 years <clears throat> which is a lot of food and um, I scored a lot of clothes from my dad so I'm going to have to probably run these by him when I get back to Sacramento and um, make sure he doesn't want to reclaim any of them but a bunch of Woolrich and Pendleton wool plaid shirts which are really my number one favorite garment these days great for camping and being outdoors and I think they look mighty fine as well make you feel nice and strong and outdoorsy so I got a bunch of those I got some army issue socks and pants and uh, a couple of wool sweaters so I made out like a bandit we also scored a sewing machine mom had kept a sewing machine that I guess was gifted to her by a friend who left um, before the shelter was completed and so now I've got a, a sewing machine which is great for um, making things and my mom brought back her wedding dress which was in a box um, and who knows maybe my sister will use it or use part of it it looked like a pretty cool dress Anyway, a lot of a lot of memories. Um, a very strange and kind of eerie place. I guess the the people that live there now, the family, they uh, the boys, has used it as an airsoft gun arena, which sounds really fun and perfect with all the creaking doors and the stairways. And anyway, the the rest of the place um, there were three floors. So if you go down, you get to another hall filled with rooms. Um, and then at the end, uh, below the great room and, and kitchen area is the library, which was filled with all sorts of books, including a, a whole set of medical journals, um, basics of surgery, and there was a first aid room uh, adjacent to the library with a full-on operating table and uh, sinks and everything you might need to s 
stitch people up uh, during the apocalypse. Um, and then going up from our level to the top floor is, again, another row of rooms. And then uh, at the end, there's a loft room that overlooks the great room. And it's on the, on the second floor on the edge of the, the dome, half dome sort of structure. And there's a uh, big lamp. And I thought, when I was down at the other end of the hall looking down, I thought that there was a skylight there. But no, it is a lamp, a big high-powered lamp that is designed to mimic the light of the sun to keep you from going crazy underground. And, um, and there were a few random strange paintings on the floor in that loft room that overlooked the great room. Um, then back on the main, main level, uh, going back from the opposite, on the opposite end from the great room and kitchen, there was a long hallway filled with big, huge 50-gallon buckets of food, and at the very end, uh, a raised tunnel-shaped door, which we were unable to unlock at the time and tour, but hopefully next time I will. That apparently led to a small network of tunnels and went up to the, where the gun turret lookout was, and then back to another massive sort of food uh, storage area. Um, there was also a livestock uh, shelter that you could access through those tunnels. Um, so maybe we, in the event of the apocalypse, would try to maintain a small herd of goats for milk and to determine how the conditions were out there. Anyway, it was very emotional, especially for my mom, because that was a really um, romantic and exciting and, and sort of tragic period for our family because, you know, we went all in, and uh, they really believed that they had found, um, you know, found the, the great truth. The, the religion and the teachings really resonated with them. And um, the spirit of the movement was really exciting because you had all these really bright people, you know, there were PhDs and doctors and people from all over the world that had somehow, through, I don't know, disseminated VHS tapes, heard about this. This is pre-internet, of course. They heard about this church um, that owned this huge swath of land in Paradise Valley, Montana. And they came and they were doing biodynamic farming they were um, all eating a macrobiotic diet and um, it was a f you know physically incredibly beautiful landscape with the Yellowstone River running through it and these big mountains uh, good land you know good land for growing food and then things just got a little bit out of hand as um, the church, you know, was focused on this apocalypse and this conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And But anyway, for a brief period, they were only there a year, if you can believe it. Just under a year, our family was there. And it seemed, as my mom says, like 10 lifetimes. But they were fully engaged. My dad was one of the, uh, he was the architect, the main architect for the Mark's Ark shelter. And he spent his days off every morning in pickup truck 
driving around procuring construction equipment and supplies and overseeing the construction of this massive bomb shelter. He was totally in his element and uh, I know it, it, it broke, it, it really it broke, broke their hearts to have to leave the place um, just because simple practicality, it, it couldn't afford to continue. And then they they never went back, you know. That was it. They left. They left all those people. Those people sort of dispersed. The church changed and moved to Arizona. Uh, we briefly attended an outpost in Sacramento, um, but then it was just too distant and and strange and didn't really fit with the way our lives were going. And us kids had really no desire to continue going to church, so we stopped and lost contact with a lot of those people. But I'm very grateful that I got to go back and see it, and I'm thrilled that I felt the connection, the memory, and I have some uh, pictures of the place. And I feel like it's going to be a part of, um, a part of my um, life in the coming years. Uh, that place and the family that lives there still really felt a strong connection with and it's really neat to have people that shared in this really strange experience that you can't really tell people about um, well you can I mean I've told my friends about it and they're interested but uh, it was for a long time something that was you know considered a cult I guess there were pictures of the Mark's Ark with the gun turret on the CBS Evening News, and uh, my parents got a lot of calls from their friends back east, you know, saying, what are you guys, what are you guys into, what are you guys gotten yourselves into, and so then it was something that was sort of forgotten, and anyway, I'm really glad I got to see it, and that's the story of Mark's Ark. Come on down to Anal Creekside. It's a beautiful place. It's towed around behind my large truck. And it's an Anal Creekside, which as you know is a place where you can relax and stretch out and put your fist inside my anus. All the while relaxing by a lovely flowing creek. And there's nothing quite like a little anal by the creekside. Uh, anal sex is great. Any sort of ass play that you may be into is wonderful and just enhanced by the sounds and smells of a lovely creekside. So won't you come on down to Anal Creekside and join me for a pleasant hour or two of ass play by the creek. I'm a big gluttonous, must admit, didn't used to be. As a child, I didn't eat a whole lot, um, especially when it came to vegetables and meat. Uh, I always liked bagels and grapes, and I came around to liking carrot sticks and turkey and cheese rolls with mustard. Always loved mustard. That comes directly... Uh, from my hate for mayonnaise 
hatred for mayonnaise, which has since lessened. And along with that lessening has been a general opening up to food. And boy, do I love food. I didn't even like tomatoes back in the day. Can you imagine? I always liked cantaloupe and melon, but never liked tomatoes. And now I love tomatoes. And well, I've been known to give myself stomach aches from eating too much. Maybe there are some other overeaters out there. And you can relate. But uh, not an entirely healthy quality. I'm fortunate enough not to have to worry about my weight uh, as of yet. But I still, I don't really like the feeling of being over full. Uh, I guess I just have come to love and appreciate good food so much. And also the cost of good food and the energy required to create good food that I feel a need to indulge and, and eat a lot of something when it's really good. I feel like it's my way of showing appreciation to the cook who's usually myself. Well, something comes along with this gluttonous nature uh, is around finger foods. Like, for instance, I'm sitting here on the drive, and I, I just collected a bunch of blueberries. And I've got the blueberries in a little can that used to contain peanuts. And they're all piled in there, and I reach for them. It's sort of at an odd angle. It's in the passenger seat, so I kind of have to raise my elbow to get my forearm in a vertical position so I can drop it down on the blueberries. And it's like one of those claws grasping at stuffed animals in an arcade. And it'd be easy enough to grab one or even two blueberries with my fingers. Lickety-split. You know, I'm quite dexterous. I've got good long fingers. I could grab one or two blueberries. But blueberries are, uh, being round, have a tendency to um, resist stacking and clumping. And so going for more than two blueberries is a bit of a task and requires this process of kind of rolling blueberries up on top of each other and gradually trying to sink your fingers deeper into the pile. And then when you do pull out your pile, it's a very precarious bunch and um, you're liable to drop one if you don't really carefully keep your hand in a vertical position and then move it over to above your mouth where you can release the cargo. Um, the point is that I take, well, I'm going to do it now, so I'm going <laughs> to see how long this takes. So first I'm going to reach and I'm going to try to get one blueberry. Got it? In my mouth. Done. Delicious. Okay, now we're going to try it for two blueberries. Go. One, two, got them in my mouth. Delicious. Let's try for three. What do you say? And go. Doing this blind. And there's three in my mouth. Delicious. Really good blueberries. Fresh picked. Still warm from the sun. Okay, now we're going to go for four. And go. 
<laughs> struggling a little bit. <laughs> okay, four in my mouth. I probably could have reached and gotten two blueberries at least twice within that amount of time. Um, and that bunch of four came close to satisfying the fat kid inside me that wants a really big explosion of blueberry taste in his mouth. Now we're going to try for five. And go. Boy, we got a curve coming up in the road. See, now here you have to kind of grab them and then sh form a little fist. Okay, we got five. That in my mouth. Delicious. Pretty good. Anyway, the point is that I just can't when I'm reaching for a, a bunch, the same thing is with potato chips. If there's a, a, a bag of, of Hawaiian sweet Maui onion potato chips, <clears throat> I can't just reach in and grasp what comes easily to me because I like to have that full mouthful where you have to like open your mouth wide and cram this pile of potato chips in. And so I, I rummage about and end up touching all the potato chips and taking a really long time to get my handful. And then I open my mouth and I cram them in and I chomp down and it's just disgusting. It's just disgusting really. And it would probably be really bothersome to anybody that was traveling with me and eating out of the same containers as me. Um, but I, I can't I can't just eat two blueberries at a time. That's not in my nature at this point. You know, maybe down the line I'll um, become a little more reserved when it comes to finger foods. But for now, I'm going to go all out and try to fit as much as I can in my hand and then cram it into my mouth. Dutchman, hop Holland, our anuses are always open, hop, and we know a thing or two about waffles, hop Holland, the anal Dutchman coming to a city near you, uh, come on down and bring your assholes and your members and your gerbils and your friends, the anal Dutchman will satisfy you and all of your anal needs. Holland, uh, Nederland, Nederland, anal Dutchman, we are the anal Dutchman, and we wear orange, and we're always happy to open our buttholes for you, uh, the anal Dutchman like it in the butt, and they like to put it in the butt, and we travel across the country, eating waffles, and having fun with each other's asses, hup, Holland, uh, the Anglo Dutchmen are coming to a, a creekside near you uh, very soon. Holland. I just passed a billboard on Highway 5 here for Subaru of Corvallis, and the image had a uh, the image was of a shiny blue Subaru and a hip young couple loading bicycles onto the rack. 
or taking them off of the rack in some wilderness area, getting ready for its spirited afternoon of mountain biking. The text for the billboard read, If you must drive, must in all caps, drive a Subaru from Corvallis Subaru. Ah, yes, if you must drive. Of course, we all know that driving is bad. And if at all possible, please use an alternate form of transportation, like biking or walking or public transportation. Because Corvallis Subaru clearly is primarily interested in protecting and conserving the environment and limiting fossil fuels. And they want more than anything for you to choose an alternate form of transportation other than driving a car. Except for one small detail that throws a wrench in that whole line of thinking, and that's that they're in the business of selling new automobiles. They're in the business of selling new cars. And they will sell a new car to anybody, anybody that wants to buy it, whether or not they need a new car, whether or not they're current car uh, still runs just fine, they will happily, happily sell you a new car. Whether or not you're an oil tycoon or somebody who goes down to the stream and dumps buckets of crude oil into the river at night, and you tell them that, I guarantee they will still sell you a Subaru. I just think it's a little bit disgustingly hypocritical to pretend to be in support of alternative forms of transportation when your entire business is based on selling new automobiles. And new automobiles are ridiculous. They are a big problem in our society and um, because they're generally bought by people that already have cars and don't need a new car, but they're want that new car look, feel, and smell. And their old car, what happens to that? Well, it goes off eventually and gets junked and buried and burned or whatever. So, Subaru of Corvallis, your billboard is bullshit. The Anal Viper by Nexus is a fearsome beast that is not to be trifled with. The anal viper will rear its ugly head and strike in the least expected of moments. You come across the anal viper, you best close up your sphincter. The anal viper will strike! It'll bite your butt! It'll bite you in the butt! And then it'll throw itself inside your butthole. <clears throat> anal viper. Anal viper is ferocious. Venom that attacks your central nervous system and opens your bowels so that it can crawl inside of you and lay eggs and shed skin and then make an about face crawl back out and wait on the side of the road for the next unsuspecting traveler. The anal viper! Mel here, your camping expert, with a camping update. Here's a story about RVs. The recreational vehicles are large, noisy, 
and obnoxious vehicles that inexpert novice and non-campers take to enjoy the outdoors while staying indoors. Last night I was at my campfire and next to me in a vacant site arrived a 75 foot long recreational vehicle. It was towing a jeep and the recreational vehicle paused while the woman exited the vehicle to examine the site for size. Eventually they determined uh, they were going to back in to this particular site which was adjacent to my site where I was camping and they did so um, while they were backing in they finally settled <coughs> left their engine running for a good hour it seemed and once the engine was finally shut off the sound of a generator persisted a generator makes a low humming noise that carries quite far. I left my campsite and walked down to a creek to wash my knives. I was so disposed for nearly an hour by the creek, enjoying the peace and quiet and the sound of the creek and washing my knives and giving them a good push. I then returned to my campsite and heard the noise as I approached the campsite so it had continued throughout the afternoon. Uh, later, I prepared dinner uh, around my fire, ate my dinner, and still the noise persisted. Uh, the occupants of the RV did not leave their vehicle. Uh, instead, they stayed inside. They opened the pop-up. Uh, they did not open the awning. They preferred to stay inside, it seems. Uh, the captain I saw descend from the staircase numerous times to procure ice from an outside of the vehicle uh, ice making machine. Around about 8 o'clock I began to consider my evening and thought I might fancy a bit of peace and quiet with my fire before I went to bed. And so, seeing as the generator had not shut off yet, I walked over <coughs> to the recreational vehicle and rapped on the door. Inside, I could hear the sound of the television. Uh, the door was opened by the captain, who was a short white man, wearing a polo shirt tucked into khaki shorts. He was rather overweight and balding and regarded me with a scowl. I inquired politely when I might expect the generator to be shut off for the evening. The man responded by asking me where I was from. <clears throat> I introduced myself and said my name was Mel. I was camping next door and that I'm from South Africa. Uh, he then inquired whether it was common practice in South Africa to complain. I responded and asked him if it was a joke that he was outdoors and had come all this way to be outdoors and yet remained indoors. I then asked again when he might be turning off his generator. 
he responded by saying that the quiet time for the campground did not take effect until 10 p.m. And seeing it was shortly after 8 p.m., he implied that he was free to continue to run his generator up until the quiet hours of 10 p.m. I then took out my six-inch book knife and slit his throat. Uh, the blood <clears throat> ran down the knife onto my hand. His, his arms instinctively reached up to grasp my arm, uh, but their grip soon loosened as he slumped dead over my person. I pushed him off and noticed that his wife and two children were screaming. The dog, which was a Dalmatian dog, uh, moved to attack me and I slit the dog's throat as well. Uh, more blood from the throat of the dog gushed down over his black and white spotted body and pooled with the blood of the captain on the floor of the RV. The women, woman and children continued screaming and I asked again if they might kindly shut off their generator but the children fled past me out the doorway and down the steps uh, screaming as, the, as they went. I turned back towards the interior of the recreational vehicle and saw that the wife had grabbed some sort of a knife from the kitchen area and was brandishing it overhead, running at me with a scream. I sidestepped and plunged my buck knife deep into her back as she went by. I believe I punctured her lung from behind. She let out a final gurgling cry as blood fountained out from the wound and then she collapsed on the floor on top of the Dalmatian dog on top of the captain. The family so dispersed and subdued, I made my way to the control area of the recreational vehicle and located the control box for the generator. I was then able to shut off the generator and the silence that ensued was sweet indeed. Unfortunately, I was not able to stay and enjoy the silence as I knew that the law enforcement would shortly be on my trail. Using my expert camping skills, I quickly dismantled and properly folded and rolled my tent, pitched it into the car, picked up my green camping crate, placed that back in the car, unpinned and folded the laundry I had hanging. It was a bit wet, but I uh, decided to forego waiting around for the laundry to dry. I folded it neatly and placed it in the car. <clears throat> also wrapped up the clothesline. My campsite so dismantled, I got in the car and drove away. Now, some of you may think my approach was a bit violent or that I overreacted, but if you listen to the sound of a generator for upwards of four hours when you're outside camping, 
you do go just a bit mad. I do remind you that I asked the gentleman kindly when he might be shutting off his generator, and he responded with a joke about my South African origins. I cannot recommend this course of action unilaterally. Uh, perhaps if I were to do it again, I would have endeavored to extend the parlay or consulted the camp host for support. But seeing as I was addled by the incessant and overwhelming sound of the generator, my mind was not clear to make a proper decision, and I elected a course of direct action to subdue the family and shut off the generator myself. For you campers out there, when you're dealing with the sound of a generator, remember that it's not always worth killing to turn off the generator. I'm now wanted in the state of Montana and may not be able to return and enjoy their beautiful lakes, streams, and campgrounds for some time to come. Well, this has been Mel with your camping update. The anal cameo by Carriage is designed for those couples that haven't quite gotten around to probing each other's anuses, but have thought that maybe one day they would, and they have a friend who's an eccentric and who loves anal everything, anal this, anal that, ass play every night, and has always told them that what they might need to spice up their relationship is a little bit of anal. Well. The Anal Cameo by Carriage is here to help. Because if you haven't quite gotten around to it, but you think it might be time, the Anal Cameo can make a sudden appearance in your evening and get you over the hump and down into that deep, orange, poopy, warm, and soft land of the Anal Cavity. You've seen the Anal Cameo before. You've seen it in pornos. You've heard about it from your eccentric friend. And then, when it finally appears, you recognize it for what it is. Briefly, an anal cameo. There, in your own bedroom. Your partner's elbow starting to probe softly your anal cavity. Your partner's finger suddenly finding its way deep inside your butthole. The anal cameo then is gone. Just like as quickly as it appeared. And you're left with that sweet full sensation in your anal cavity and you know that now that you've tried it and you've both enjoyed it and you've gotten over the hump you can probe your own anus or your partner's anus on your own time discover new pathways and it'll all be thanks to the anal cameo that appeared just when you needed it most the anal cameo by carriage There's a highway sign here in Montana that says, Don't drink and drive. Arrive alive. Actually, I believe it's reverse order. Arrive alive. Don't drink and drive. Rhymes, right? 
rhymes very well. That arrive alive really hits home, doesn't it? I was thinking that maybe it should just be arrive, period. Arrive alive? What's the alternative to arriving alive? Arriving dead? Such poor form, arriving dead. You know? Somebody's throwing a great party, and you have the audacity to show up dead. You're not going to arrive anywhere dead. You're going to stay just where you are until somebody finds you, and then I guess you get taken to wherever you get cremated or buried. But it's not like you're going to be driving somewhere and die because you were drinking, and then they're going to carry your dead body to your destination and dump it at your, your friend's doorstep. And your friend will then say, Oh, what an asshole. Showing up dead my party. Shouldn't have done that drinking and driving. Casita is a small recreational vehicle that you throw behind your truck. It's so small it fits in your butthole, man. A little anal casita has, has smooth edges so it don't hurt when you put it in your butthole. It feels really good. You have a whole small house inside your butthole that has wheels on it. You can put small people inside the anal casita and then you have whole families in your butthole. And the most I've ever done is I've gotten six anal casitas in a row with six little families inside. And I put all of them in my butthole and it feels so good. If you're a little person you want to take a ride on the anal casita Give us a call away at 800-444-ENAL and we'll hook you up with this small casita with a stove and little kitchenette and little bunk and a bunk below a sleep four. So perfect for a little family of four and then you take a chip inside the human body. It's like some magic scuba shit. So the anal casita comes in a variety of sizes. I like the medium. Medium feels good. Like I said, I can fit six medium anal casitas inside my butthole. And one after the other, you stuff them up. And like I said, they got smooth edges and they got wheels. So they just roll right on in all the way up your inside. It's like nothing you ever felt before. An anal casita coming soon from some company that makes very small trailer RVs for tiny families that can fit inside your butthole. Well, folks, <clears throat> believe it or not, that's our show. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. I hope I didn't offend anybody. I didn't at all mean to... Um, belittle anal sex or ass play. I think those are fine activities. Uh, I myself have not 
explored those regions, but perhaps this podcast will inspire me and maybe some of you to do so. If you like the podcast, won't you take the time to rate and review via iTunes? Um, that would be wonderful. There's instructions for how to do so at gaberobertsart.com forward slash support. Until next time, adios. Adios.